All right, welcome to the 685th, 681st regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. And I have to make an announcement about the announcement I just made because at last month's meeting, I made an error with the number. Also, the number in the newsletter for April and for May was wrong. And I've checked with past presidents and others, and this is the first time in our 68-year history <laughs> that the president mentioned the wrong meeting number. So I just want to to say that because of this grievous error, I accept full responsibility, but none of the blame. That's right. Okay, please join me in a Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I, I don't know, but I looked over here and I saw the stars and the red, and I thought that was the U.S. flag because I just saw a little. Jerry, so. do, you, do you know? Do you know the salute? Do you know the salute to the Confederate flag? No. Okay. Okay. All right. So. Okay. We can we can start with uh, with dinner if the staff is ready. On each table, you should see a piece of paper with a picture of a soldier, and the question is, who is this soldier? And <clears throat> last month, no one won this contest, so I thought I would make it a little easier this month, and I think I made it too easy because Marshall Krolik already guessed, not just guessed, but knew who this soldier was. So we're going to keep on and he's not going to say anything. And a few other people here that I know aren't going to say anything. Bruce. <laughs> this soldier was born in 1818 in Northumberland County, Pennsylvania. Orphaned at the age of 13. Yes, start, go bring in the soup. Uh, he, apprenticed, he apprenticed himself to a printer. He had a lifelong affiliation with the Democratic Party and it began with this paper that he was apprenticed to called the Lewisburg Democrat. He moved to Ohio in 1830, where he published the Northwestern Democrat in Defiance, Ohio. So that's the first clue. And we're kind of doing it for fun because Marshall has already won. So. At, at this point, I tell you what, why don't you, why don't you sit down? You, you got it. Well, actually, what was his first name? That's, that's good enough. That's good enough. Okay. I'll read the rest of the clues, and then I'll tell you who it is, because we finally got someone other than Marshall who, who got this. Another officer would say of this soldier, no more worthless man ever commanded men. His devotion to cards, whiskey, and women filled the measure of his delight 
except when under fire, and then he was a lion. He was, uh, after Chickamauga, he was promoted to Major General and put in charge of the district of Etowah in northern Georgia and Alabama, and behind Sherman's lines during the Atlanta campaign. He rescued besieged Union soldiers at Dalton in June 1864. He had an affair with Princess Sam Sam. And he took part in the Battle of Nashville. And after the war, he returned to Ohio, actually to Toledo, Ohio, and resumed his career in journalism. He was elected to the Ohio Senate in 1878 and served as police commissioner in Toledo before his death in 1883. This is Major General James Blair Stedman. Stedman. And actually, I think, Jim, you might mention him during your talk tonight, right? <laughs> after, after Jim's talk, you, you'll know who he is. <laughs> Nobody died on my other one either. <laughs> but I, I think it must have been a successful tour. Everybody had a good time. Uh, the bus got stuck and it didn't get stuck very long. Tractors luckily pulled it right straight out. Uh, I think it was fun all along. Um, come again next year. And we have to look forward to next year, Ray Radovich. Is she here? Would you want to say something about next year's tour? I should have probably talked to you beforehand so you could compose your thoughts and get ready for it. After two years in the Western Theater, we're heading back east next year. And we will be based right north of Richmond, Virginia, in Glen Allen, Virginia, 15 minutes north of downtown. And we will be uh, walking the battlefields where Grant and Lee first met. And at the Wilderness Interpretive Shelter, there's a poster with the image of Grant and Lee. And underneath, it says, Collision of Giants. So we're starting in the wilderness. We're going to go to Spotsylvania. Essentially, we're going to fo follow the Northern Army. Wilderness, Spotsylvania. We'll make some stops on the way to the North Anna Battlefield. And by the way, this club has never been to the North Anna Battlefield. And after North Anna, we're going to make our several stops on our way, and we will end at Cold Harbor. So uh, I'm very excited about this. Uh, uh, for fun night, Saturday night, I just signed the contract this week. We will be having cocktails and dinner on the site of uh, historic, the American Civil War Center at Historic Tredegar. So, very, very excited. And we, ha this club has not been to the wilderness in 22 years. Last time was 1988. So I'm very excited. Wilderness in Spotsylvania, last time, 88. Very good. It'll be limited to two buses, so sign up now. I was hoping for karaoke on Saturday night, but I guess I'll get by. Just a couple announcements for some other roundtables.
The Northern Illinois Civil War Roundtable will have their banquet on June 5th. And the speaker is going to be Tim Smith, formerly with Shiloh, and he's going to be speaking on the Battle of Champions Hill. And if you need any information on that, get in touch with me. I can get uh, the sheets and whatever to you. The Salt Creek Roundtable on Friday, June 19th, will be having their annual banquet. And the speaker is going to be Donna Daniels, and she's going to portray Mary Todd Lincoln. And this is of the Max and Donna Daniels uh, duo that goes by the the name Abe and the Babe. That's, that's, that's their website name, Abe and the Babe. And I believe one of them has a license plate that says that as well. So uh, with that, uh, Donna, would you like to tell us about new members and guests? Well, we have our special guest, the speaker, Jim Ogden. Please stand up. And... Kim Cook. Kim, are you here? This, she's at the speakers at the guest table. Eldridge Davis. Jim Klaus. Phil Knopple. And Dave Powell. And if, if some of our guests are interested in joining, this year ends on June 30th. So if you would like to join, just fill out a form and, and put your, your signing for the year of uh, September through June of next year. Thank you. Now, uh, I'd like to call upon Marshall Krolik. He has a, an announcement, a brief announcement. <laughs> two. Two what? Two minutes. two minutes. Won't even take that long. On the table um, is a brochure relating to Gettysburg Magazine. Uh, this is the magazine that was started some years ago by Bob Younger. Uh, Bob, of course, has passed on, but it is now being uh, edited and published by Andy Turner, a very dedicated young man who's doing a wonderful job. And of course, the introduction each month is written by Ed Bars, who reviews all the articles before they're put into the magazine. It is a wonderful magazine, glossy print and all of that good stuff, a lot of pictures. And I highly recommend it to you. Uh, please consider possibly getting a subscription. Thank you very much. Uh, just one, one thing, in Sunday's Chicago Tribune, there was a review on a new book on Vicksburg as Turning Point in the Civil War by Winston Groom. Anyone interested in uh, seeing this article? I'll put it on the table back here so you can look at it afterwards. Okay? And just another announcement, the print over here. The first person who approaches Rob Girardi with $100 will get that print. So don't rush. Okay. At this time, I'd like to conduct the election of officers for next year.
and I'm not on this list. Yes. <laughs> As I uh, announce your name, would you please stand? For President Tom Trescott, Senior Vice President Ray Radovich, First Vice, hold your applause till the end. <laughs> First Vice President Bob Stoller, Second Vice President Brian Sider, Treasurer Mark Matranga, Assistant Treasurer Jim Cunningham, Secretary Donna Tui, Assistant Secretary John Cocciolo, Cocciolco, sorry, Cocciolco. Trustee terms to expire in 2011. Fred Johansson, Cindy Heckler, David Zucker, and Eric Girardi. Trustee term to expire 2010, Bjorn Skaptison. At this point, I would ask if there are any nominations from the floor for any of these positions. Do we need to actually nominate the slate? Would Bruce, would you nominate the slate? I move that the slate as read uh, be nominated. Second to that motion? Do have a second? All in favor, say aye. Aye. Opposed? All right, you're all elected. Congratulations. All right, at, at this point, I think we will take a, a brief break if we could get back at 7.25 during that break, you might consider buying uh, book raffle tickets. Rob will be up here selling book raffle tickets. And also, if you haven't finished the quiz, please do so, as our quiz master will be picking them up and grading them shortly. Thank you. Back in 10 minutes. One thing, uh, one of the guests tonight is Dave Powell. And Dave is very much involved in Chickamauga. In fact, if you're into war gaming, his latest war game is actually on the Battle of Chickamauga. And uh, I'm not into war gaming, but if you are, uh, you, you might even know of uh, Dave, and he has other war games as well. But Dave and Jim Ogden are the leaders of the Chickamauga Chattanooga Study Group. And it's a group that meets every March, generally, generally the second weekend in March. And the group, we take an individual part of the battle of Chickamauga and study it in great depth. And it's really an experience. On most of our tours, believe it or not, we don't go as in-depth as some of us would want to go. But with the Chickamauga Chattanooga Study Group, we really, we really go in depth. So we will spend maybe half a day on one aspect of the battle. And I would encourage you to join this group. We're still open to new members. And if you'd like to, send me an email or drop me a note, and I will get you on Dave's uh, mailing list for the Chickamauga Chattanooga Study Group. All right, with that, I guess we'll have the book raffle. Rob Girardi. We've got a couple of different things. Uh, the print is gone already, so uh, so much for that. 
Michael Weeks is here, and this is his new book on uh, Civil War sites, the Civil War Road Trip Guide. He donated uh, some copies of this, and we'd like to auction these off right now live. Who wants to give me some money for one of these copies? And he'll sign it for you. Where's, uh, where's Michael? Michael's sitting in the back, so you can get it signed. How much? 50 bucks. Okay. <laughs> she said 50. Five old. That's what she said. I think Mary won the first one. How much for the second one? I'll, I'll start it with 15. 15, okay. Somebody go better than 1 5. 20. Anybody else? 25. 25. 25 once, twice. Okay. Mary and Jerry. <laughs> and here, Larry. <laughs> and we're all making Mary. And now we'll pick the. Uh, <laughs> this is getting scary, all right? <laughs> Let Jim Ogden pick the first. Please don't tarry. <laughs> in the interest of disclosure, <laughs> I'm in that pot. <laughs> All right, the first winner, 1860665. We have a winner. Good. <laughs> Okay. Pick one. Okay. Pick the next winner okay, you while you're making Which up one? your mind. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what would you recommend? Uh, this, this is an excellent book. Okay, let's take that one. All right. Number two, we have 1860759. Is there a book you don't have? <laughs> Inventory. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the only one. One eight six zero five eight two. No, I'm going to find out who Jesse yes, is. Yes, you are. You go find out who Jesse is. And pick the next winner, please. I think Jesse's the house cat. There you go, No, that's messy. Messy. <laughs> <laughs> Our next show, one eight six zero seven three three. All right. All right. And the last one eight six zero six six nine. All right. We'll pick a different one. <laughs> okay. Very good. Uh, we raised over four hundred dollars tonight. And now, the moment we've all been waiting for, our own Inspector General, Quizmaster, David Zucker. As I have said before, as Harry Truman once said, no matter what you do in this world, there's always some dumb son of a bitch who won't like it. Um, also, it would help if we could get the air conditioner turned down just a little bit. I don't know what the rest of you are. I'm freezing. 
Also, the reverber I don't know if some of you have noticed this, but there's a little reverberation in this. PA, it feels like that we're on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Now, let's get down to cases. Jim Ogden on Chickamauga, rescue at Horseshoe Ridge. Name the Indiana druggist for, who was a captain at Chickamauga and who later founded a pharmaceutical firm. Well, that, as all of you figured out, was Eli Lilly. Merrill Dow is a competing firm of Eli, of, as a competitor of Eli Lilly's. And Stephen Hurlwood should need no introduction to the members of this organization. Name the Alabama general and New York native whose family built the mansion that is still the residence of New York City mayors. I have to admit that in reading Glenn Tucker's book on Chickamauga, I was surprised to find that Archibald Gracie, a member of this family, had been an Alabama Civil War general. Apparently, his new, he was born in New York, and his family sent him down there to run the fam family mercantile business in Alabama before the war, and this was the side that he chose. Um, Peter Stuyvesant was the Dutch colonial governor of New York and a notorious, and apparently an anti-Semite as well. And the first Jews showed up, who ever settled in the United States showed up in New York in 1654. Uh, Stuyvesant was not glad to see them. Fidelrella LaGuardia was indeed a resident of Gracie Mansion for, I believe, about 12 years uh, or during his three terms as mayor of New York. True or false was Henry Watterson, who later edited the Louisville, Kentucky Courier-Journal, living in Chattanooga at the time of Chickamauga. That's true. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Mr. Watterson, not only was he the longtime editor of what for a long time was a paper that was in the same category as the New York Times and the Washington Post, but in addition, there's a whole expressway in Louisville that's named for him. Truefall, or rather, was General Sheridan a participant in Chickamauga? Yes. And was future President James A. Garfield at Chickamauga? Uh, yes. All right, we had 100s from the following. The gentleman who signed himself as the Confederate Purple Heart veteran for, uh, winner for 2009. <laughs> uh, Maggie and Mary. The Society for the Prevention of Steve Horton. I'm amused to know that that organization still seems to be around. Uh, Bill Nelson, Nathaniel Lyon, I thought he was dead. Bensonville John, Paula, El Marco, a double winner tonight. The misspelled Juan Pizarro. <laughs> And the antithesis to the society that I mentioned earlier, a gentleman who signed his name as Terrible Tom Trescott. Congratulations to one and all. In keeping with my short introductions, Jim Ogden. <laughs> Apparent enemy bullets coming through the woods towards him had diverted George Thomas westward, north-northwestward, 
to his, in his ride southward looking for reinforcements for his and the Army of the Cumberland's threatened left. He had thereby come upon a line of Union troops in a new position behind his main line around the Kelly Field to the east. This new line was facing to the south. Speaking with the several division and brigade commanders present along this new line, uh, formed on a series of mostly wooded hills, the 14th Corps Commander Thomas had learned something of the disaster that had just befallen the right of the Army of the Cumberland over the last hour and a half or so. Thomas endorsed the actions of those leaders who had taken the initiative to rally and organize the, these men, fragments of units, and a few intact uh, regiments and brigades on this spur of Missionary Ridge that by the end of the day would be widely recognized as Horseshoe Ridge or Snodgrass Hill. The latter name because of Car Carpenter George Washington Snodgrass's uh, farm maintained on the eastern terminus of the complex. The actions of these uh, leaders had already allowed them to repulse one Confederate attack. Old Pap Thomas rode along the line surveying the position but most importantly being seen by the men so that the knowledge of his presence would be added encouragement to continue to fight and hold the ground. Pausing north of and below the crest of the open spur east of the Snodgrass farm buildings, behind the men of Charlie Harker's brigade um, who was engaging Confederate forces coming up from the south, the attention of Thomas's command group was drawn to a large cloud of dust to the northeast that closely or that clearly indicated the approach of a large body of troops from that direction. What troops were they? Friend or foe? The fact that they might be enemy would be no surprise. Braxton Bragg, the com commander of the Confederate Army of Tennessee for the last two days had been trying to turn the Union left flank and in fact his open, the Bragg's opening attacks on the morning of September the 20th had indeed accomplished that for a short time before those initial Confederates were forced back and then subsequently two additional Confederate attacks would do nearly the same thing on the Union left. And George Thomas had wrestled with each one of those threats as they had developed. So maybe it was rebels closing in to finish off the Army of the Cumberland. But could they be friends? Gordon Granger and part of the Union Army of the Cumberland's Reserve Corps had been posted to the north. They'd been posted near Rossville Gap and Missionary Ridge and along the important federal road. Granger had orders sent to him from Rosecrans the evening before, while maybe not the most clear, uh, but those orders did direct Granger to hold himself in readiness to potentially support George Thomas and Alexander McCook. Thomas, in fact, had himself attempted to communicate with Gordon Granger to better to coordinate the potential support by Granger's forces. Who could, uh, Thomas asked who could see uh, those troops clearly uh, through the dust as they advanced southward towards him. Thomas himself uh, makes efforts to look through his glass to identify the allegiance of this uh, closing column. But Thomas's own anxiety and anxious um, nervousness at this time has been translated to his horse, and his horse 
is too unsteady for him to be able to see clearly through his glass. The, uh, the anxiety is reflecting itself in another way with Thomas. He's been pulling at his beard, and his beard has been pulled in all different directions, sticking out from his face, um, not his normal, calm, composed self over these last few minutes. He hands his glass to others and asks them to report to him what they see. And one observer uh, reports seeing a United States flag, indicating that these troops must be Union uh, forces. But is that really the case? To prove the situation, Thomas will order one of his staff, Captain Gilbert Johnson, to ride northward to make contact with those troops. And over the next few minutes, as that column of dust continued to approach from the north, Johnson will ride out, make contact, and return, and report to George Thomas that indeed that column coming from the north is Gordon Granger and part of the Reserve Corps of the Army of the Cumberland. Maybe the disaster of this day, September 20, 1863, won't be as catastrophic as the last hour or so might have suggested. What was this force that Gordon Granger was bringing to the Army? When you look at um, the Army of the Cumberland's table of organization, in fact, even the, uh, the, at the time of the uh, campaign for Chattanooga, even the Union uh, or the Confederate Army of Tennessee's table of organization, you will find in, um, in August and September on those tables of organization, organizations that are um, identified as reserve corps. Um, and normally, when you talk about a reserve corps or a reserve force, it is intended that, or it is thought that that force is intended for exploitation, pursuit, and reinforcement. But because of the scale of the area over which Rosecrans had to operate, um, he was having to use his reserve corps uh, to guard that very large rear area. He had to use it essentially as what a more modern commander would or might have called a rear area command to secure um, his extensive line of communications and main supply route. Just to give you an idea of the, uh, the size of this area, uh, Rosecrans' ultimate base of supply is Louisville, Kentucky. By the time he has Chattanooga and is right around um, uh, Chattanooga itself, he has more than 300 miles of single-track railroad behind him for um, his supply line. All of that route runs through territory that he must consider to be hostile. In fact, just in the area that he is responsible for, from the Tennessee state line southward down towards Chattanooga, um, Rosecrans has to commit a significant portion of his available force. Maybe I should ask an additional trivia question this evening. How many men, roughly, does Rosecrans engage in the actual Battle of Chickamauga on September 18, 19, and 20, 1863? It's about 58,000 men. Well, what was the actual strength of the Department of the, uh, the Department of the Cumberland in August of 1863. It's 95,000 soldiers. Where are the other 37,000 men in Rosecrans' department at the time of the Battle of Chickamauga? They are guarding one element or another of this area stretching back to the Kentucky and, state, and Tennessee state line north of, um, of Nashville. The commander of Rosecrans Reserve Corps is Gordon Granger, a New York native, 
and West Point um, uh, graduate. In fact, Granger is another one of those most famous uh, West Point graduates of the class of 1845, the class where uh, 14 of the members will gain the rank of general during the course of the Civil War. Granger had had service in uh, the Mexican War, where he had won several brevet uh, promotions to the rank of first lieutenant um, and captain for gallant and meritorious service. Um, despite his interest in artillery, his immediate pre-Civil War career was in the mounted forces. He was an officer in the Mounted Rifles um, Regiment, and then when that unit was reorganized into the 3rd United States Cavalry in 1861, he retained an officer slot in that formation until the active campaign in um, southern Missouri in, um, in 1861 that led up to the Battle of Wilson's Creek, where he will see, um, see action um, on that hot August day. Um, his conduct at Wilson's Creek will earn him the um, colonelcy of the 2nd Michigan Cavalry, which um, uh, later will have as another one of its field officers, um, another one of the individuals in our um, trivia question this evening. Um, any, um, any guesses? I don't have an extra prize or anything, so. Uh, <laughs> Phil Sheridan. Um, Sheridan will also be a, a short-term um, field officer in um, the 2nd Michigan Cavalry. Um, Granger will, um, will move on to, uh, to brigade command, um, seeing um, action in West Tennessee, and by the spring of 1863, he'll be assigned to um, the Army of the Cumberland, um, or what has by that time become the Army of the Cumberland, um, and will be elevated to command of the Reserve Corps. Now, Rosecrans Reserve Corps on paper was quite a force. It was three divisions, nine brigades, 38 regiments, 10 um, batteries, 16,000 or so men. Um, but um, it was not in actuality um, quite as um, a coherent and combat effective force as the, the, uh, the sheer number and size of it might suggest. Um, primarily having to guard the rear of Rosecrans' army. The majority of those um, individual regiments were scattered in ones and twos, even parts of regiments, in towns and posts all over much of Middle Tennessee. As a result, very few of the, uh, the regiments um, and brigades ever got to function really as such and certainly not as larger level organizations. And because they, are, they spend so much time scattered and divided, their complete um, uh, equipage and also their organization um, is, um, is less than complete. They do not have the normal complement of, um, of wagons and teams for moving even some of the most critical supplies. Um, and um, they do not have as well-established medical detachments as the other divisions in the, uh, the 14th, 20th, 21st Corps of the Army of the Cumberland. Um, by the, uh, the summer of 1863, the medical um, uh, staffs of the 
the Army of the Cumberland are organized at the division level where all the medical personnel, the surgeons, assistant surgeons, hospital stewards, the men who are detailed for the care of the, uh, the wounded um, and the, uh, the sick um, are all functioning as a single group for each um, division. Um, within the Reserve Corps, this is not really possible with the, uh, the units scattered all over much of Middle Tennessee. Um, but despite um, uh, these, uh, these difficulties, um, Granger on September the 6th um, will receive an order from William Stark Rosecrans, which will lead some of his troops to eventually uh, fight in the actual Battle of Chickamauga. Now, of course, what has happened over the, uh, the last um, uh, few weeks is that Rosecrans' army has advanced out of Middle Tennessee on that broad front in multiple columns um, that I have, uh, have spoken about before and uh, visits here, and which uh, some of you all have uh, visited on the ground um, itself with Colonel Bars and myself uh, on, um, on previous occasions. And I um, received a warning earlier this evening that you all might be coming back in the uh, not-too-distant future. So, um, and we uh, will have a chance to, uh, to visit some of that ground um, again. Um, the Rosecrans um, broad front multiple column advance where a third of his army was used as a feint or deception operation while the other two thirds of his army thrust across the mountains southwest of Chattanooga and forced Bragg to abandon the city of Chattanooga um, will, uh, will win Rosecrans on September the 9th um, control of the actual landmark of this campaign, the small town of, um, of Chattanooga, Tennessee. But three days before Rosecrans gets Chattanooga on September the 9th, um, and in anticipation of um, the, uh, the likelihood of this success, and recognizing that he now commands more territory in south, extreme southeast Tennessee and northeast um, Alabama, Rosecrans ordered Gordon Granger to bring forward some of the, uh, the Reserve Corps troops. Granger's um, order is to concentrate at Bridgeport, Alabama, as much of the Reserve Corps as could be spared from the duty of guarding the railroad, depots, and exposed points north of the Tennessee River. Um, and once he was able to assemble what he could, he was to move that force in support of the, uh, the main army. This uh, order from Rosecrans um, to Granger will set in motion many of the regiments of the Reserve Corps, um, with uh, as many of them being directed towards Bridgeport um, as possible. Uh, one um, brigade of, um, of uh, Illinois and Ohio soldiers under Dan McCook will um, set out on a march from Columbia, Tennessee, southeastward. The 78th Illinois, which had been doing duty um, in recent weeks in recently won Shelbyville, um, Tennessee, which um, I should note um, uh, was observed by many of the participants to be flea-ridden. In fact, so badly flea-ridden that they had not camped in town, but had moved outside of town. Um, it's kind of a common uh, refrain, Confederate um, uh, camps were not known to be the most clean. And apparently Confederates who had been quartered in Shelbyville had, um, had allowed the town to become um, flea infested. 
Um, but these um, and other units begin marching um, southeastward um, towards um, uh, Bridgeport in the, uh, the hot first days of um, September and over roads that have now been marched on by many other troops. And as a result, the surface of the road has been ground into a fine powdery dust. And the soldiers are consistent in the campaign as describing that dust as being ankle or shoe mouth deep. Imagine marching down a road in the middle of a 400 or 500 man regimental column or maybe in a 5,000 man division column with 2,000 animals, what happens to all of that fine powdery dust? It is thrown up into the air, sucked in by the soldiers through their lungs, making the need for water in the drought-ridden environment of southeast Tennessee and northwest Georgia at this time um, even um, uh, more desirous. Uh, the, along the way, some of the men have, um, have an opportunity for a little recreation as they're climbing over the Cumberland Mountains to get down to the Tennessee River at, um, at Bridgeport. Um, they come upon part of the Cowan Railroad Tunnel, a very important feature on Rosecrans line of communications, a 2,395-foot-long um, railroad tunnel through the Cumberland Mountains. Um, because it is so long and also to facilitate its original construction in the 1850s, a number of vertical shafts had been sunk from the top of the mountain down to the level of the tunnel. In the original construction, this was so there would be more faces for the miners to work to dig the tunnel. But at that length, 2,395 feet, um, it was uh, also necessary to provide some ventilation for the, um, the, the, um, the wood um, and coal um, smoke from the steam locomotives as they go through. And these shafts uh, served as, um, as ventilation shafts. Many of these soldiers will see them as they march over the top of the mountain, wonder what that shaft is, hear a locomotive uh, periodically passing below. Most of them want to have uh, some idea of how deep that is. And they will drop rocks down through the, uh, the shafts to trying to judge the distance um, to the bottom. Hopefully none of their rocks were too large. There are no reported derailments um, of any trains going through the, uh, through the tunnels. Um, but then it is uh, also possible that the railroad was functioning in quite the same way that others did, having a man walk ahead of the, uh, the train as it went through um, a tunnel. Um, but over the, um, the couple of days that follow the orders on September the 6th, these troops um, will march southward towards Bridgeport, many of them covering 80 to 90 miles in five days. One of them, Colonel Carter Van Leck of the, um, uh, or Lieutenant Colonel Carter Van Leck of the 78th Illinois will write on September the 10th, we arrived here at 2 p.m. today very tired and dirty. I've been in the saddle from daylight till dark every day since Sunday, the 6th of September, and feel pretty sore and tired, but not too much so to write you a word, to tell you that I am well, and have got along without, being, uh, without anything unpleasant transpiring save the heat and dust, which have been worse today than before. You can have no, no idea how dusty it is, at least six inches covered the roads all the way today. Other troops um, assembling include 
the 22nd Michigan, which had been doing duty in, um, in Nashville and was very much um, in the, the image of paper collar soldiers having been posted in the, uh, the Tennessee State Capitol. Um, their dress and police had been expected to, uh, to be uh, more complete than uh, many other um, uniform or many other um, uh, regiments. Um, and also, um, one of the regiments um, coming forward was one that had been detached previously from Rosecrans' um, uh, regular force, the 89th Ohio of Turchin's um, Brigade. These two um, regiments will be banded together in a demi-brigade under the 22nd Michigan's Colonel um, Heber Lefevre, um, and he will uh, will take them forward um, uh, from Bridgeport as well. For many of these men, this gathering at Bridgeport was uh, for them the first time they had seen any large um, body of troops. Most of these units have been in service for about a year, some a little more, some a little less, um, but they have, um, have not functioned in large formations by and large. Um, one officer will write, I wish you could have heard our revelry, revelry, revelry this morning, um, September 15th. Um, the regiments, 11 in all, are crowded close together. As soon as the division headquarters gave the signal bugle call, all the other bugles, uh, one in each regiment and one in each battery, uh, 14 in all, set up their howl. Then began an excellent brass band to play a very pretty tune, and next began all the martial music of a hundred drums and fifes, each of which was blown or beaten as violently as its owner could do it. Of course, the band and the bugles were soon nearly drowned. I thought it excelled all the discordant dragons I ever heard of, but it was not long before the soldiers were thoroughly awake and they set up a yell to increase the noise as much as possible and then succeeded and they succeeded admirably. I got, the, I got a good idea of pandemonium. I never heard the like before. Um, as a result, uh, or uh, Granger is able to, um, to assemble um, these troops at Bridgeport over the, um, uh, these first days after um, the order of September the 6th. Um, and at the, uh, the same time, while he is doing that, the situation at the front of the Army of the Cumberland will have changed. Uh, having won control of Chattanooga on September the 9th, William Stark Rosecrans was suddenly faced with an offensive action by Braxton Bragg on September 10th and 11th in a pocket on the side of Lookout Mountain known as McLemore's Cove. Um, and then two days later, just south of Lee and Gordon's Mill, um, when Bragg attempted to strike at some of Tom Crittenden's 21st Corps, um, Corps troops. This had led Rosecrans to order a consolidation of um, the, uh, the forces maneuvering over the, uh, the sand and lookout mountain ranges, um, and it prompted Rosecrans to order Granger to bring forward what of the Reserve Corps he had been able to gather. Um, and on September the 13th, um, Granger will um, direct the, uh, the subject of our, um, our, our qu uh, initial quiz tonight, um, James Blair Stedman, uh, to take 
the three brigades that had been, um, been brought forward and gathered, uh, along with the Demi Brigade um, that included the, uh, the 22nd Michigan and the 89th 9th Ohio, um, and to march them uh, eastward towards Chattanooga. This force of, um, of roughly 6,000 men will set out on the, uh, the morning of September the 3rd uh, at 7 a.m. and over the next 27 hours will march 35 miles, marching much of the night of September the uh, 13th and 14th and arriving at Rossville, Georgia um, on um, the, uh, the morning of September the 14th at 10 a.m. Uh, their march again had been um, uh, through or over very dusty roads. The final leg of it included a tough climb up the northern tip of Lookout Mountain um, and into um, the Chattanooga Valley. And it was along this stretch as they came over the narrow road on the northern tip of Lookout Mountain that we get the first glimpse of one of the more um, interesting characters in this formation. That is the 12-year-old, uh, the um, uh, Mr. Williams, um, how old are you uh, right now? 11. 11. Well, one more year, um, and, um, and maybe you will be as adventurous as this young fellow was, um, Johnny Clem, an Ohioan who's run off and um, become associated with the 22nd Michigan. He is, of course, most often um, known as, um, as a drummer boy. Um, but we see um, from this account of him as he rides, not marches, rides over the, uh, the tip of Lookout Mountain on one of the vehicles of the um, of Battery M, 1st Illinois Light Artillery, that he is serving as one of the regimental markers. Um, uh, the, each regiment had um, two men designated to carry small um, flags, small guidons, um, to indicate the left and right end of the, uh, the regimental line. And Johnny Clem is serving um, as one of the 22nd Michigan's um, uh, uh, regimental markers um, at that time. Um, when the, uh, the march um, is completed on the 14th at Rossville, um, they have taken post at a very important location for William Stark Rosecrans. Um, if you now turn to the first map in the handout, the one that is labeled in the upper right-hand corner, um, situation September 15, 16, 1863, um, right near the top center of the map, you should be able to find Chattanooga. Um, you will notice around the little blocks that represent the, um, uh, the, the street grid and the buildings of, um, of Chattanooga itself that I have enclosed those in a circle. That represents the roughly 3,000 Union soldiers who are the, uh, the garrison of uh, newly won um, uh, Chattanooga, troops that Rosecrans has uh, either left there or been able to bring in. They include a number of engineering outfits, um, but there's a small Union force in Chattanooga. Um, the, uh, the bulk of the rest of the Army is well to the south of Chattanooga. And if you go due south from Chattanooga, just straight down the, uh, the page to just a little bit above center, you'll find an odd-shaped oval, oval that is labeled um, Crittenden for Thomas Leonidas Crittenden's 21st Corps. You'll notice within that is the, uh, the, the words to designate um, Lee and Gordon's Mill. 
the rest of the Army of the Cumberland, uh, George Thomas's 14th Corps, which is a little bit lower and to the left of Crittenden, and then further to lower and to the left or to the southwest um, is the Oval for Alexander McCook. The bulk of the Union Army of the Cumberland is getting back together again, coming out of the mountains from the southwest with McCook's troops having come back over Lookout Mountain, moving northward, and having to climb Lookout Mountain once again to join Thomas to then stretch up towards Tom Crittenden. As Rosecrans had ordered this consolidation, he was aware that uh, it will take several days and that during that time, there was the potential, potential threat that the Confederates, Braxton Bragg, who had been, has been emboldened by the arrival of reinforcements, might take the offensive and try to cut Rosecrans off from Chattanooga. And so as troops became available over the next several days, Rosecrans tries to close the 16-mile gap roughly between Crittenden at Lee and Gordon's Mill and the small garrison in Chattanooga. And on September the 14th, after that forced march, Gordon Granger will post the 6,000 men, three brigades from the Reserve Corps that he has sent forward with, um, with Stedman um, at, uh, in, or in the area of Rossville Gap. Now, um, Missionary Ridge um, runs from the, uh, the north-northeast to the south-southwest, um, and um, you'll notice just uh, above and below the word Rossville, um, which is about halfway between Chattanooga and Crittenden on the map. You'll notice um, uh, they, there are the symbols for the, uh, the range of hills for Missionary Ridge, both north and south of Rossville Gap. And a very important road went through Missionary Ridge at Rossville Gap. It's a road that today does not get perhaps as much attention as it should in the story of this campaign. It was a road that was still known in the 19th century as the Federal Road very frequently. And in fact, at the time of the Civil War, it was the main road leading south from Chattanooga towards Atlanta. I sometimes um, tell folks uh, to give them some idea of just how important this road was, that it essentially was the, the um, Civil War equivalent of Interstate 75, which stretches from Chattanooga to Atlanta. Um, the, uh, this road um, didn't follow the exact alignment of I-75, uh, followed um, here at this particular point a very different one, um, but if you were going from Chattanooga um, to Atlanta uh, in, um, in 1863, you would have marched south out of Chattanooga to Rossville Gap, gone through Rossville Gap and Missionary Ridge, and then gone eastward and southeastward over to Ringgold and further southward. Today, the reason this road does not get the attention that it perhaps should is that to only short sections of it can be traveled um, today. Now, there's a little piece called Lakeview Drive. There are a couple of other short little segments that you can, um, can drive on. But today, we do not have an opportunity um, to travel this road. It had really gone out of um, use as a road by the end of the 19th century. Um, and as a result, uh, most of the writers on this campaign in the 20th century have not fully appreciated this road in the same sense that um, the, uh, the commanders of this time would have. 
Um, because of this road being the, uh, the major route um, from Chattanooga southward into Georgia where Bragg had withdrawn to, um, Granger is ordered to post these 6,000 men across this very important road to be a blocking force um, at the point where the road passes through um, Missionary Ridge. They took um, post there beginning on um, September the 14th um, and will over the next um, several days um, uh, conduct operations out to the east and southeast um, reconnoitering, um, uh, probing for, um, for Confederates, um, including um, one thrust all the way to Ringgold on September 17th um, that uh, results in, um, in stirring up quite a hornet's nest um, at, um, um, at Ringgold. Um, during this time, um, Gordon Granger's um, training and experience as a regular Army officer comes, um, comes out um, very clearly. Um, many, as you may know from reading other um, accounts uh, of the war, many regular officers were quite disgusted by the less than thorough discipline of the volunteers. Uh, many of the regular officers were quite frustrated by the fact that they couldn't get the volunteer soldiers to follow every rule in Army regulations and the Articles of War. Of course, most volunteer officers um, and, or, and most um, uh, officers at the time of the Civil War uh, learned to just accept the little more flexible um, interpretation of the rules that most volunteer soldiers had. Not Gordon Granger here in September. Seeing large numbers of, um, of the men of these three brigades of the Reserve Corps coming in with, um, with produce gathered by their foraging activities um, out into the countryside, and knowing that strict orders had been put in place about foraging, um, Gordon Granger uh, will have many of these men arrested. This will raise quite a bit of, um, of ire amongst these um, um, the soldiers, particularly some uh, Illinois, 96 Illinois men and um, uh, 52nd Ohio soldiers. Um, they maintain that since um, they are, their formations do not have enough wagons and their wagons have lagged behind and rations are short, they should be permitted to forage off of the countryside. Uh, many of, um, of these arrested soldiers' comrades, um, some of these arrested soldiers Granger has had tied up by their thumbs um, to lower branches of some of the trees around the Ross House at um, Rossville Gap. Um, some of these um, soldiers' comrades will come to Granger's headquarters um, and threaten to, uh, to cut the men down. Um, some of the officers of these regiments themselves will go to, um, to Granger's headquarters and a good old shouting and cussing match breaks out between Gordon Granger on the one side and some of the officers of the 96th Illinois and the 52nd Ohio on the other side. Eventually, Stedman and Dan McCook um, have to, uh, to intercede, but this is after Granger had ordered two artillery pieces that were nearby to load blank charges and fire them at the uh, assembled um, um, uh, rioters, as Granger would have seen it. Of course, blank charges might not, you might think, might not do anything, but at very short distance, 
um, the uh, the hot gases from the burning powder um, could be um, be quite um, quite devastating. Um, Granger said if they um, if they didn't disperse after that, they'd fire a real canister. Well, the artillerymen refused um, to uh, to do as um, as ordered. Uh, eventually, Stedman and um, and McCook will. Um, uh, intervene, um, and um, and Granger winds up going off to his headquarters tent nearby, um, cursing loudly, but defeated, um, and the foragers um, are released. During this time, there are some command changes within the uh, the formation. Um, the, one of the longtime um, brigade commanders. Um, uh, Colonel William P. Reed of the 121st Ohio um, is, um, who has proven uh, to be less than competent, is reassigned to Nashville. And for one of the brigades, um, a, new man, a new commander is appointed the senior colonel within the brigade, Colonel uh, John G. Mitchell of the 113th Ohio. Um, and um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Carter Van Leck of the 78th um, Illinois will write, he is a young man of very fine ability and talent and has been in service ever since the war began. He is only 24 years old. I like him very much, as does everybody else that knows him. He is a very great improvement over Reed and Benison, um, who have heretofore been great eyesores to all of us. Um, uh, the um, uh, in the um, uh, the initial quiz this evening about um, about Stedman, um, the what, the one quote that um, um, uh, Jerry read about um, uh, about Stedman um, liking uh, women and liquor, um, but in battle um, he's a real lion. Um, that is um, is what Mitchell will say about him many years later. Um, so. The um, um, on September the uh, the 18th, these troops will um, will get into some of the first action when Bragg um, implemented um, his effort that brought on the actual Battle of Chickamauga, um, and um, that was of course Bragg, uh, just as Rosecrans had anticipated, Bragg's effort to turn the Union left flank and drive the Union army off um, to the southwest. Uh, that day of the 18th. Um, two of these brigades will be sent uh, late in the afternoon to attempt to defend or to join in the defense of one of the crossings of Chickamauga Creek, but by the time they arrive, the Union troops who had been there have departed the area, and the Confederates who had crossed at Reed's Bridge have also departed, um, and overnight, these two brigades of the Reserve Corps under Dan McCook and John Mitchell will spend a rather um, uh, nervous, uneasy night um, in the area of J. Steam Sawmill and Reed's Bridge before being recalled the next morning. Overnight, they had skir skirmished with some of um, Nathan Bedford Forrest um, Calvary and had captured a number of prisoners or stragglers from the Confederate force that had um, crossed the creek at Reed's Bridge the day before. Um, and it is um, these captured soldiers that McCook comes into possession of, which leads him to believe that there is a lone Confederate brigade in the area of Jay's Mill and Reed's Bridge. Um, and this McCook reports to George Thomas as on the morning of the 19th of September, um, uh, McCook and Mitchell march back north towards 
um, Rossville. Um, Thomas um, takes the information and, of course, marches out eastward, makes contact with um, um, Confederates, and the main battle of Chickamauga will begin and spread southwestward during the course of the day. During the course of the 19th, as the big fight developed four and, and more miles to the south, these troops of the Reserve Corps along the um, important federal road will listen to the, uh, to the growing sound um, of battle. Whitaker's, uh, or one brigade of the troops commanded by the Kentuckian Walter Whitaker will probe out um, towards the east themselves along the federal road out towards Chickamauga Creek they will have a skirmish with some of Forrest Calvary um, under um, Colonel John um, Scott um, and um, will, uh, will suffer uh, 41 casualties amongst um, the, uh, the troops who were engaged. Uh, the, withdrawing back further to the, um, uh, to the west late in the afternoon, um, Granger will deploy the bulk of this force um, in the area of McAfee's Church along um, the, uh, the Federal Road. And now if you turn over to the first map uh, for September the 20th, the one that is labeled um, uh, down in the lower right-hand corner, morning September 20 until 11 a.m. Um, you can see right near the very top of that map the symbols for, uh, for Stedman's um, two brigades of Whitaker and Mitchell. They are posted on some high hills near McAfee's Church. They also have the benefit of being near um, a spring, Noonan Springs. Um, so at least these troops um, have an opportunity to regularly at this point fill um, their canteens. They'll spend the night there, a cold frosty night, a killing frost it was noted. Um, and on the morning of, um, of September the 20th, um, as the, uh, the sun um, rises and begins to burn off the, uh, the fog, they'll note that all is quiet. As I had noted earlier, uh, overnight, uh, Gordon Granger receives a message from Rosecrans um, uh, about his expected role on September 20th. It was a message that um, is both somewhat reflective of Rosecrans' growing fatigue and mentally exhausted condition, but also um, uh, it will, is a message that will, uh, will probably cause Granger to wonder a little bit about exactly what he was supposed to do. Um, in that message, Granger is um, told to continue to guard Rossville Gap in Missionary Ridge, but at the same time um, to support George Thomas and Alexander McCook's troops um, who are four and more miles to the south of him. Um, I wonder how Granger might have figured he was going to accomplish both of those tasks um, because to support um, those troops would mean you'd need to be a whole lot closer than the four miles that Granger was. Um, Granger, at least overnight, decides that he will retain his position along the Federal Road um, and does so, and that's where the morning of September 20th will find um, these men. As I noted uh, a minute ago, the day dawns initially quiet. It is not until about 9.30 before um, the major sounds of battle uh, begin. Uh, as they do, Granger will, um, will order some of um, the troops along the road to probe um, out to the east to see what Confederates might be in their front. 
One of these um, reconnaissances is conducted by um, Stedman himself. Um, he rides out um, and has only a few Confederates fire back at him. Um, an indication, he says, that there are very few Confederates present. If there were more, more would have shot at him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, unless, of course, they had been, um, been told to reserve their fire. I don't know, but that was Stedman's interpretation of it. Um, uh, Granger himself, taking the reports from Stedman and some of the skirmishers who were pushed out, will, um, will uh, come to the conclusion that the only thing in his front is some uh, ragtag, bobtail Confederate cavalry. Nothing serious lies to his front. As the sound of battle develops um, further to, uh, to the south, Granger and Stedman from a high hill, and periodically Granger on the top of a hayrick, will observe columns of dust rising out to the uh, east and southeast of them. And those columns of dust are moving southward towards where the growing sound of battle comes from. As Granger and Stedman listen and watch to the, uh, or listen to the sound and watch the rising smoke and dust, um, they um, begin to debate what it is they should do, whether they should march southward and join the fight, or whether they should continue um, to hold their position along the Federal Road. Now, in the aftermath of all of this, uh, partisans on both sides will build up cases um, that, um, that it is Gordon Granger who is entirely of the mind of marching south to, uh, to join George Thomas, or that it is James Stedman who is of that mind, and he essentially will overrule his superior Gordon Granger. There's also um, one version that has, um, has Granger deferring to Stedman for the decision. Um, in the end, they will make the decision to march south to the sound of the guns when they detect that that sound is going away further and further to the south. Um, and in fact, for a time, to Granger and Stedman at their position near McAfee Church, that's exactly what they would have heard and it was indeed true. Because when the Confederates finally did begin their attack on the morning of September the 20th, as is shown on this map, one Confederate division under the former Vice President of the United States, John Cable Breckinridge, has attacked and actually for a time turns the Union left flank. And that receding sound um, that um, Granger and Stedman would have heard was, was Breckenridge's men uh, moving westward across the Lafayette Road and then turning southward to actually for a short time get behind the Union left flank near the north end of Kelly Field. As that was occurring, um, Granger and Stedman make the decision to march south. The column will, um, and now you can move on to the next map in the, uh, the handout, um, late morning, September 20, 1863, um, 11 a.m. to noon. Um, and you'll notice that um, the symbols for, um, for Stedman's um, two brigades are now no longer um, along the, uh, the Federal Road at McAfee's Church, but they are now moving southward. They initially moved cross-country. Um, to get onto the Lafayette Road, and they march southward towards the sound of the guns um, and towards the obvious scene of battle. 
as, um, as they move south with Whitaker's Brigade in the, uh, the lead, four regiments, followed by the Demi Brigade of the 22nd Michigan and the 89th Ohio, which have been attached that day to, um, to Whitaker's Brigade. Um, this column um, will suddenly begin to see in its front some Confederate cavalry. It will force Whitaker to halt and begin to deploy his troops out of the column of march and into um, a more uh, uh, or a, into a position that is more suitable to uh, to go into uh, to combat. Um, the cavalry they are encountering are some of Nathan Bedford Forrest men who had been attacking on Breckenridge's right flank who had, in, had themselves crossed the Lafayette Road in the area of um, Cloud Church and Colonel Cloud's farm, um, and where two Union Division field hospitals had been located. In fact, Forrest men had captured those um, hospitals. But now, as Stedman's two divisions march southward, they will force Forrest men to withdraw, um, and for a short time, the Union Hospital complex at um, the Clouds um, will be uh, back in Union hand. Um, as Stedman's men march southward, Walter Whitaker uh, will learn that one of his, um, his friends who had been wounded in the fighting on the 19th, um, the officer of another Kentucky, or an, an officer of a Kentucky regiment, um, had been killed on the morning of September the 20th by Confederate artillery fire. Um, one Confederate artillery battery, the 5th Company Washington Artillery, in the initial part of Breckenridge's attack, had um, seen a large body of Union troops milling around to the north of where Breckenridge had crossed the Lafayette Road believing that that body of Union troops in the distance was some Union f combat formation, the 5th Company Washington Artillery had fired a number of projectiles in that direction. They did not know at that time um, that it was a Union field hospital complex, and indeed several of their shells, ha shells had landed amongst the patients at that um, hospital complex, and several um, had been further wounded and a couple killed as a result of that artillery fire. Um, Stedman's um, uh, two divisions will continue southward, now deployed more in a true combat formation. Um, the, uh, the regiments uh, moving in, um, in a column formation to uh, facilitate a more rapid uh, redeployment. And by one source, it is even noted that they move southward in a square to guard against cavalry. Um, the, uh, there are many other accounts of this march where it is not exactly possible to understand what formation they were moving in, um, but this one account does very clearly indicate that at least for a short distance they had formed a giant hollow square um, to, um, to be ready to defend against this Confederate cavalry should it um, uh, attack in force. As they move further south through the large open um, farm fields of the Cloud Farm, um, they will come under Confederate artillery fire. Some guns of Forrest um, uh, Cavalry, supported by some of Breckenridge's guns, have set up on a ridge line to the east of the Lafayette Road and um, will fire westward at um, uh, Stedman's troops as they move southward. Um, Gordon Granger, an artillerist um, at heart, cannot resist an opportunity to fire back. 
ordering Battery M, the first Illinois light artillery, to go into battery. Gordon Granger rides in amongst the guns and will even direct the fire of one of the guns for several shots um, back at the, uh, the Confederate artillery. Um, the, uh, the, the Union troops have got a, a relatively difficult um, task ahead of them. The Confederate guns are in some brush on this, um, this ridge line. They're not clearly visible, and with the smoke um, of the, uh, the guns firing and also the dust being raised, exactly locating the guns is not um, easy, and the Union artillery fire is not all that effective. Gordon Granger will soon be convinced that there's not a need to fire at these guns. As he's sitting on his horse directing the um, firing of this one gun, a Confederate artillery projectile passes within just a couple of inches of his head, and this will encourage Gordon Granger to, uh, to move on. And he tells the, uh, the, the gunners of, the, uh, of Battery M um, to, uh, to, to limber up themselves that he had work for them elsewhere. And the column continues southward. Um, to get out of some of the worst of this artillery fire, um, the, uh, the troops will turn off of the Lafayette Road and move across some fields. Um, the Confederate artillery fire has set the brush in the fields on fire. One of the Illinois soldiers will say it looked like a bunch of farmers were clearing a farm field. Uh, fire was extensively used at the time to, uh, to clear brush from fields. Um, and so as this column of, um, of, of soldiers moves across the um, big open fields, they are moving also through some small grass fires that are, um, are running across the fields as well. Getting closer to the sound of the battle to their south, this column will pass to the west of the McDonald Farm. If you now look a little bit further south along the Lafayette Road on your map below um, where forest troops are shown, you will see on the map along the Lafayette Road um, the symbol for the McDonald Farm. That is where the visitor center on the Chickamauga Battlefield is located today. Um, and the, uh, this column will pass to the west of it um, and also to the east of the Mullis uh, farm, which you also see on the map. And as they do, as they march across the Mullis farm um, and on to, uh, and further southward, they march into um, the, uh, the actual battle of Chickamauga. Of course, now what has happened over the, uh, the last um, uh, couple of hours uh, is that uh, reacting to the, uh, to the threat to the left end of the Union line um, from 9.30 um, in the morning um, on, uh, a fatigued and mentally exhausted William Stark Rosecrans will eventually begin moving too many troops on his right flank. Um, and when he responds to a report of a gap in his line, he creates an actual gap, and just at that moment, um, the largest Confederate formation on the field, three divisions in Longstreet's left wing, happened to attack right at that particular point, and as the arrows on this map suggest, the right half of the Union line collapses under the weight of that mammoth Confederate attack. Many of those Union soldiers will withdraw rapidly to the, uh, to the west into the hills of Missionary Ridge, 
but some will turn northwestward and northward as they withdraw in the face of pursuing Confederates, and as they withdraw northward, they move into a wooded hill complex, um, that wooded hill complex that becomes known as Horseshoe Ridge and Snodgrass Hill, um, and will then, under the leadership of a number of officers, rally and create a new line on that wooded hill complex to resist the um, uh, pursuing Confederates. Um, as um, Stedman's troops um, approached, as I described earlier, there is some confusion on the part of Thomas and his staff as to their identity, but that is eventually resolved, um, and a little before 2 o'clock, these um, two brigades um, under Stedman, Whitaker and Mitchell's brigades, arrive uh, in the fields just behind the Union line that is rallying on Snodgrass Hill, a line that faces to the south, a line that is behind the curve or semicircle or backward C of Thomas's line around the Kelly Field. Now on the final map, afternoon September 20, 1863, Thomas's primary position on the 20th is that semicircular or curved line around the, uh, the Kelly Field. What is shown on this map by the series of symbols which are labeled D, K, S, uh, S, T, B, C, H, and T. Um, the, uh, the new line is rallied by men like John Brannan and Thomas J. Wood and Charlie Harker and John Beatty and others on the Wooded Hill Complex, um, Horseshoe Ridge or Snodgrass Hill. Um, and initially, that line rallied there is only half as long as shown on um, this map. Um, the, uh, the troops who are rallied are able to repulse the initial Confederate attacks launched by um, Kershaw's Brigade of, um, or Kershaw's uh, South Carolina um, formation. Um, but, uh, or, and, and as the final of those are being repulsed, um, Granger is ordered by Thomas to use um, Stedman's two brigades to fill the gap between the Snodgrass Hill line and the Kelly Field line. You'll notice that the two lines on the map there are not connected. There is a space of about a half mile between the end of the Snodgrass Hill formation and the Kelly Field uh, position, and across that gap throughout the afternoon, nothing more than a heavy line of skirmishers um, will be placed. But just as Stedman began to turn um, the um, two brigades in that direction, a new threat develops further to the west. The fighting uh, between Kershaw and the rallied Union troops on Snodgrass Hill had drawn the attention of other Confederates. Two brigades of Bushrod Johnson's division, which had led the big Confederate breakthrough, and one brigade of Heinemann's division have marched northward. And as they arrive, they get ready to um, essentially turn the right end of the line, the initial Union line, on Snodgrass Hill. That right end of the line was then held by the 21st Ohio, most of its men armed with the Colt revolving rifle. Uh, that weapon with its five-shot um, um, cylinder um, had given those men greater firepower and allowed them to anchor that line initially, but now as Bushrod Johnson's men come up from the south, they threaten to turn that flank. Very quickly, 
Thomas tells Granger to tell Stedman to redirect those two brigades. And in the big open fields to the north of, um, of the end of the Snodgrass Hill line, um, those two brigades will turn and move westward and southwestward to protect that flank and extend the Union flank further to the left. Whitaker, uh, or excuse me, further to, uh, to the Union right. Uh, Whitaker will deploy his, um, his six brigades, his four of his own and the two um, of the Demi Brigade that have been attached to him. He will deploy them in um, the standard Casey's textbook um, uh, or Casey's tactics formation that the Army of the Cumberland is using at the time with half of the regiments in the front line and a, the other half of the regiments in a second line. And so Whitaker's initial formation has three regiments across the front and three regiments in a second line. And they move um, to the southwest out of the open fields and into the woods. And as they do, through the thin trees, through up a slope covered with very little underbrush, they see coming over the crest Confederate um, skirmishers of an advancing Confederate force and indications of a Confederate line of battle reaching the crest of the ridge. Whitaker gives the command forward and the, um, the six regiments go charging up that slope. It is noted by some to be rather difficult. The soil on this slope is very limited. It is a gravelly surface, um, and, but the men go struggling up that steep slope. Um, and as they do, they will drive back the, uh, the Confederate skirmishers and sh strike the other Confederates who are reaching the crest in their front and drive them back um, to the south over the crest of the ridge. Reaching the crest of the ridge, these first three regiments in Whitaker's brigade, the 96th Illinois on the right, the 115th Illinois in the center, and the 22nd Michigan, should seemingly have stopped. But uh, moving through the woods with their blood up, having driven the Confederates from their front, they continue on over the crest of the, uh, the rise and down the, um, uh, the southern slope of it. Um, they drive the Confederates back in their, um, their front and go anywhere from um, 100 yards to a couple of hundred yards um, to the south out in front of, um, of the crest of the ridge itself. In the process, they do drive the Confederates back, but these three regiments lose contact with one another on um, both their left and the right. And pretty soon you have three Union regimental formations out on the, uh, the slope of the hill in front. The 96th Illinois charges the, uh, the furthest. In fact, they charge uh, far enough that they come almost literally into the muzzles of the, of the guns of a couple of Confederate artillery batteries that have been dragged by hand by the Confederates up onto the steep wooded slopes to the south to add weight to the, uh, to the attack on this Union position. Um, struck in front and also um, um, fired on by uh, the, the Confederate infantry. The 96th Illinois will fight for a short time um, at this position, but heavy casualties um, will, um, will soon cause, the, and their flanks being unanchored will soon cause them to, uh, to withdraw back towards the crest. The 22nd Michigan had not gone as far, but it is, um, goes far enough that they actually take some artillery fire into their right flank from those same Confederate guns. 
Um, soon, these three regiments um, withdraw. They withdraw back to the, uh, to the crest of the rise and back over it, allowing the three regiments in the second line to take post on the, uh, the crest of the ridge itself. Um, and um, those three regiments then begin to resist um, a renewed Confederate attack. Um, behind them came the four regiments of Mitchell's brigade, formed two up and two back, um, but they are moving actually a little too close behind Whitaker's men. Um, as they, um, they move into the woods, um, it is seen that they actually need to, uh, to veer further to their right to extend Whitaker's um, right flank. Um, Stedman will um, uh, attempt to do this, riding back rapidly, um, ordering the, uh, these troops to, uh, to halt and redirect to extend that, um, that right flank, but that is only partially successful, and um, some of Mitchell's and Whitaker's men will actually overlap for a time on the crest of the rise. Um, Mitchell will have to deploy his two regiments in the second line, the 78th Illinois and the 121st Ohio, um, up onto his very right, extending his brigade then very quickly into a single line. Um, the guns of Battery M, 1st Illinois Light Artillery, will come forward and take post along the line uh, as well, um, four of the guns being on the, uh, the right flank. Um, the other two wedged in along the line um, and nearer the, uh, the left of, uh, of Mitchell's brigade. Um, as, these, um, the, as this line or as Stedman's line forms on the crest of um, these hills, uh, they, uh, a, a firefight at short range begins um, with the, uh, the Confederates. The, um, the two... Um, uh, the, or excuse me, the three regiments of, um, uh, of Whitaker's first line have withdrawn behind the crest to, uh, to reorganize, um, but then they will return as well. And as this, um, this firefight continues um, in the afternoon, all um, 10 of these regiments will rapidly melt away with um, casualties, uh, both in killed and wounded, um, and from men who will drift to the rear, some of them um, true skulkers, but many taking wounded to the rear, and soon um, all 10 uh, regiments that Stedman has brought onto the field um, will be deployed essentially in a um, single line. Carter Van Leck of the 78th Illinois will describe the, uh, the fighting we maintained our position upon the crest of the ridge from about um, 2 o'clock until 5 under one of the most terrible fires of record. I was emphatically, uh, it was emphatically a hand-to-hand -hand musketry fight. Time and again did the enemy charge upon our line in superior force, often approaching as near um, as 30 or 40 yards but were as often hurled back into the deep ravine from which they vainly struggled to ascend. For three hours did we maintain this fearful contest. Early in, the, um, the, in that fight, as they had charged to the crest of the ridge, the 78th Illinois um, uh, Major, then acting Lieutenant Colonel, um, uh, brought us, will be struck in the neck 
the bullet passing um, just literally right at the top of his collar um, in one side and out the other, he living just an instant. Um, the, um, uh, that loss is typical of many of these units which see many of their field and company officers fall um, in this, uh, this heated fight along the crest of the ridge. As Van Leck noted, the intensity of this contest is, um, is very great. Five months after the battle, he visited the Snodgrass Hill position again and walked along the line where his regiment had been that fateful September day. And in January of 1864, he noted that along the line, there was a little bush, then without any leaves because it being winter, no piece of that bush was no bigger around than his little finger and it did not stand two feet above the ground. And it was, he could count the marks of seven bullets on that little bush. How intense does the fire have to be to mark something no taller than two feet and no piece of it bigger around than your little fire seven times? Throughout the afternoon, these men hold that position. The Battery M, 1st Illinois Light Artillery, from their position, um, will, um, will support by firing um, uh, uh, a large uh, volume of ammunition, 276 rounds of spherical case, um, and 360 rounds of canister, the anti-personnel projectile, just perfect for this type of fighting um, on the afternoon of September the 20th. Um, at one point, some Confederate um, troops had climbed up into some trees out in front of the battery's position and began to snipe or sharpshoot at the men along the line. And one of the section commanders of the battery figured out a way to solve that very quickly. He had fired a couple of double canister rounds into the treetops, and um, that fire from the Confederates quickly ceased. Um, now, not all of the participants on, the, um, uh, on the, the ridge this day were of the human or equine kind. Battery M had a mascot, a dog, which they had named Battery. And Battery wanted to participate in the fight. And periodically, as the Confederates attacked and were repulsed, Battery would run out in front, yapping at the Confederates. Well, Battery was not always careful. And one time when he ran out in front, he ran out in front of the muzzle of one of the guns just as the gun was fired. Battery was not injured by the departing downrange projectile, but his hair was singed um, from the discharge of the gun, and it was noted that he would spend the, after the rest of the fight back at the line of caissons behind, well in the rear. <laughs> To, the, to, to be safe. The fighting, um, as Van Leck noted, um, what became essentially hand-to-hand, -hand, um, and in some places it truly became hand-to-hand. -hand. Um, in front of the 121st Ohio, they are able to shoot down one of the Confederate color bearers um, and will claim as a prize the flag of the 22nd Alabama. With this intense of a fight, you can imagine they went through ammunition in large volumes. Um, and uh, despite having carried more than just the 40 rounds in their cartridge box into action, um, they expend the, by afternoon the bulk of their ammunition. 
they had brought with them um, 95,000 additional rounds, but this has been distributed to all of the men on the Snodgrass Hill line. And um, by late afternoon, all of these troops are beginning to run very low. Um, as the Confederates resume an assault in late afternoon, some of the, uh, the men on um, the line in the 21st Ohio and then the 78th Illinois beget, get down to their uh, very last rounds of ammunition and begin to withdraw. But at this time, the order to withdraw comes as well. In late afternoon, George Thomas um, uh, ordered a phased withdrawal from the battlefield. Um, and Stedman's um, division will be some of the first to reposition, dropping back from their position along the crest of Horseshoe Ridge to another ridge line to the north. Um, in this, um, this last attack, Carter Van Leck um, him, will be, uh, be wounded, struck in the left arm by a projectile that um, essentially runs the full length of his, um, his left arm. Um, but um, these troops um, will begin the withdrawal in late afternoon um, and um, take up a blocking position for a time. That is all except two of the regiments. Um, the two regiments, the 22nd Michigan and the 89th Ohio, attachments to Whitaker's Brigade, part of that demi-brigade, um, will be joined by a third, the 21st Ohio, also a detachment. Um, and as the withdrawal from Snodgrass Hill is, um, is conducted, these men will not receive the orders um, to withdraw. According to some, they were ordered to stay. More, proper, more probably, um, they were just forgotten in the, um, in the situation in the afternoon and with uh, many officer casualties amongst the leadership um, in Whitaker's brigade. Um, but as, the, um, as darkness settles on the, uh, the field, the final Confederate attack will come forward and Confederates of Kelly's and Triggs Brigade will move up the slope and surround and capture uh, much of the 22nd Michigan, 89th Ohio, and 21st Ohio. But with that capture, um, the Confederates seize the Union position on Snodgrass Hill, but they find that the Union Army has um, withdrawn back towards um, Chattanooga. Uh, the battle will come to a close, um, and uh, the accounting will begin. Of the um, 3,800 men of um, Stedman's division that had gone into action that day, 1,787 men will become casualties, um, a total of 47%, nearly one man in two of the men engaged um, in the, uh, the fight. It had been a difficult and costly fight for these largely green soldiers, but in the end, it had bought some critical time um, to allow a more orderly withdrawal of some elements of the Army of the Cumberland back towards Chattanooga. They had provided a rescue for the Army on that Wooded Hill Mass Horseshoe Ridge and will earn um, and earned um, for themselves um, a record that will be carried forward in future engagements um, in the war. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jim. Uh, 
we're going to be making a contribution in your name to Stringer's Ridge in Chattanooga, as you requested. Thank you so much for, you. for speaking here tonight. And now we'll take some, uh, some questions. But as president, I'm going to take the prerogative <laughs> of not necessarily asking a question. Well, maybe I will ask a question. Jim, you mentioned that Carter Van Vleck went back to the Chickamauga battlefield and walked the line on Horseshoe Ridge. Please tell the rest of the story. The reason he went back, and, uh, the reason he went back in January of um, 1864 was to look for his friend, Major Broadus. Broadus had been killed almost instantly, as I described, when a bullet went through his neck right at the top of his, uh, his collar. And when Broadus fell from his, uh, his horse, Van Leck ordered a soldier to take Broadus's body to the rear. Van Leck's um, idea was that this soldier would carry the body back to the ambulances and the body would be then carried back to Chattanooga so it could be sent back to Macomb uh, for burial uh, in, the, uh, in the Broadus family plot. After the uh, battle, Van Leck learned that Broadus's body had not left the battlefield. The soldier had only carried the body about 100 yards, apparently unable to find the ambulances. As I noted, um, this, these, this is a relatively ad hoc organization. They don't have uh, full um, medical um, detachments developed. Um, this is probably a factor in why the body does not get off of the battlefield. So five months after the Battle of Chickamauga, after recovering from the wound to his left arm, Van Leck, in January 1864, takes a party of soldiers out to Horseshoe Ridge to look for Broadus's body. When they arrive there, there are graves all over the hills of, um, of Horseshoe Ridge. They go to the area where the 78th had fallen and to where Broadus's body was taken, and there are, some, are, there are several <coughs> relatively fresh graves. Those fresh graves are just from the last few weeks when George Thomas had sent troops out to give better burial to Union remains on the battlefield. And they open the grave, or they open what they believe is likely a grave to contain Broadus's body, and they recover the body and send the body back to Macomb, Illinois. Now, visiting, or excuse, visiting the battlefield then and opening the graves, you can imagine how terrible that was. Well, Van Leck writes two versions of this story. One, to Broadus's widow, to prove that he has the right body and to tell her that he is sending the, uh, the body back home. But he cleaned it up. Because when he opened that grave, he writes in the letter to his wife, it was not a single grave. It was a large pit that had been dug where large numbers of Union soldiers' remains had been dumped into the pit. And Broadus's body was no longer intact. Pieces of it were in different parts of the grave. And they went through the remains in the grave, and they found Broadus's body, recognizing the bullet hole through the neck right at the top of the, uh, the coat and vest collar. They recognized the missing teeth and his, his hair and the socks and a few features um, he had, had a lot of missing teeth. They recognized the missing, uh, or the missing teeth in the jaw. They got the body back together again. And while they had done all of this, they kept one soldier off to the side. 
And after everyone else in the party was sure that they had Major uh, Broadus's body, they brought this other soldier forward. And they went through the same litany. Is this the Major's hair? Is this the Major's um, uh, toothless jaw? Is this the Major's sock? Um, and the young soldier says, yes, that is my father. Broadus's son had been a member of the 78th um, Illinois as, as well. Broadus' body is put in a casket and sent back to Macomb. Well, first to Chattanooga, where it's buried for a short time, and then eventually back to Macomb for burial. Uh, Van Leck goes on for page after page in a letter describing this in great detail. I can only imagine he is trying to cleanse himself of just what he has had to do. Van Leck himself did not survive the war. In the Atlanta campaign, he'll be mortally wounded and die from the effects of that injury. Marshal? Um, those of you who are on the battlefield tour will, may remember that I mentioned um, Gordon Whitney, a past president of this roundtable, um, who was one of the authors of the biography of Jefferson C. Davis, the Union General. Um, Gordy's great-grandfather, Stephen B. Cannon, was a second lieutenant in the 22nd Michigan he was part of the charge up the ridge. He was there the entire time. Uh, he was one of the few members of the 22nd Michigan to get off the battlefield and escape. And to be there with Gordy at the 22nd Michigan Monument, the last time the round table was there, was a very emotional moment, not only for Gordy, but for those of few of us who were his good friends and were with him. And to hear him tell the stories that had come down through the family from Lieutenant Cannon of that day was uh, almost as good as Jim's recounting of the battle. I corrected my understanding that before this began, that the Union troops were very demoralized. They were starving because the Confederates had uh, been more or less well, that, that's going to occur in the weeks that come after the Battle of Chickamauga. They're retreating back into Chattanooga. Uh, they lose the battle on the battlefield, but the Union Army is able to retreat back into Chattanooga, hold on to the city. But the Confederates are going to come up and lay siege to them in Chattanooga. Um, and um, the uh, and over the next uh, particularly four weeks, but then really on to um, uh, end of November, ra food supplies for the Union Army in Chattanooga will get down to very low um, ebb, um, as low as a quarter ration at a time in um, uh, in October. Um, the average soldier in the Union Army was entitled to the equivalent of three pounds of food a day, and in October the rations get down to a quarter of a pound, or excuse me, a quarter ration, which would be less than a pound of food a day um, per man. So they had to tighten the belt some. So. And wasn't, wasn't General Grant eventually able to crack the siege and, and open Right. At the, at the end of October, a new supply line will be opened into Chattanooga, the cracker line, um, which will, um, will allow rations to be raised from a quarter to a third to a half to about three quarters um, at the end of the siege. So, Yes, with your um, deep study of this engagement, um, what's your personal aha? What's your personal revelation? Hmm. <laughs> um, well, 
Um, it, it is not so much out of the, um, the, the engagement or the fight itself as it is out of the, uh, the larger campaign. And that, that is just really the, the thoroughness, the prior planning, the vision that William Stark Rosecrans had in the spring of 1863 to, uh, to think about how he's going to deal with the Confederates in the mountain fastness, potentially in the mountain fastness around Chattanooga. Um, he, has, he has thought very far forward on the battlefield. The little steamboats that make the cracker line possible in, the, in October are only there in late summer and fall because Rosecrans had had the forethought to have the quartermaster department to buy little Ohio River steamers, disassemble them, and ship them down the railroad from Louisville to Nashville to Bridgeport, Alabama, where they're then assembled in late September and early October for not Rosecrans to use because he's gone, but for Grant to use to open the new cracker line into Chattanooga. So I think just, um, just kind of the, the level of planning that went into uh, to this so is probably the big thing. So one more. I didn't follow your comment about the change in the tactical manual with the formations of these um, the um, uh, in, um, as When the war began, um, the, the Union Army uh, was basically functioning under, um, under two manuals, um, Hardy's Tactics, which had been adopted in the 1850s, and Scott's Tactics, which go all the way back to the 1830s. Um, and recognizing some deficiencies in both of them, a new board of officers was appointed under si um, Silas Casey, and they uh, rewrite the, the standard infantry tactical manual, um, and since Casey was the senior officer on the board, it gets named after him, and in August of 1862, the United States War Department adopted a new infantry tactical manual, which is commonly called Casey's Tactics. Um, and, um, and while some Union armies are slow to adopt it and fully use it, um, the Army of the Cumberland in the spring of 1863 um, pretty much adopts it across the board. There are very few examples of, um, of Army of the Cumberland outfits not using Casey's tactics. And it, it does require or it does call for a little bit different battlefield formations at the brigade and di division level where basically you have multiple lines of troops which then give the commander some versatility or flexibility to react to situations. So instead of having all the regiments online side by side to one another, you'd have two or even three line formations that give you greater flexibility. So, Once again, thank you very much, Jim. Uh, next month, Thomas Cartwright.